Today we are beginning a new series, and this series is called A 21st Century Faith for the 21st Century Family, and today we're going to look at the topic of singleness. Uh, This is a mini-series that we are doing uh, before our retreat. It might go a week after our retreat at the end of the month. After that, we will be returning back to our larger series, which is in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And that will begin sometime right after uh, our church retreat. But for the next three or four weeks, we are going to be focusing on this, this topic of the 21st century family. And how does the Bible, how does the witness of the church throughout the centuries uh, affect and shape and guide our understanding of the family? I'm going to make uh, several observations before we get into actually today's topic, which is singleness. And we're going to be looking at a few passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to get there in a few moments, but I'm going to make um, several observations, several reflections um, on this series and singleness in general. So, When we talk about the term family here in the church, the immediate thought that comes to mind is what? The nuclear family. A husband, a wife, maybe some children, God's design. And that is definitely true. What we tend to forget, though, is that that also includes singles. There are certainly singles within the nuclear family. And we also can have a limited understanding of what the Bible talks about in terms of family. When the Bible talks about family from Old Testament to New Testament, it does not primarily refer to the nuclear family, although we do today. Certainly the Bible talks about in the Old and New Testament about the nuclear family. There are many verses, there are many commands about that. Absolutely. And the nuclear family is a core foundation of the church. That said, the overall emphasis of the Old and New Testament, when you say the word family, is not necessarily the nuclear family. It is what? It is the family of God. The wider family of God that God has formed uh, in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, and through the church in the New Testament. The family of God that God has brought together, that he has chosen, elected, predestined, drawn to himself uh, in the Old Testament and drawn to himself through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so when we talk about a first century faith for the 21st century, what we're really talking about is not just the nuclear family. We are also talking about singles. And we are also talking a wider scope in terms of what does this mean for us as the family of God? of which the nuclear family is part of the overall family of God. In this series, um, and particularly today, when we talk about singleness, if you are here and you are single, and you're not married, at the end of this sermon, you want to come away with a sense that God has encouraged you in your season of singleness. He's encouraging you to be steadfast, to be committed to himself, to uh, keep on the narrow path of Jesus Christ. You want to be encouraged if you're single. You also 
are going to probably be convicted if you are single. That the Lord through his word and the exhortations of his servant up here will uh, point out areas that you need to address and change. And that is, I believe, what God wants to do in your life as a single. If you are married here today on this topic, you, this is important to you because you have single friends. And you want to be asking yourself, how can I minister? How can I pray for? How can I serve? How can I love? How can I be in community with those who are single? So I want to make some observations here um, before we get into our passage today. First observation. About 40% of the adult population today in America is single. That's up from about 28% in the 1970s. So the single population of single adults has gone upwards as Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z have um, kind of emerged onto the scene over the past decades. The number of singles has gone up here in this country. The number of marriages has gone down. There's been an increase in singleness. And we can understand why the people... Um, marriages have gone down. There's more divorces. People get married later in life as opposed to maybe 50 years ago. People just choose not to get married. So there's more single people. People define marriage in different ways. And if anyone doubts that, that there's been a rise in singleness in this country, all you have to do is look at the proliferation of dating apps. That um, it used to be that uh, marriages were arranged between families. It used to be that you would have this whole community of people in your town, and uh, you, you would know people, and you'd, you'd kind of find someone there, and there'd be this kind of set, foundational, structured sense of community. And that's very different with urbanization here in the 21st century, where we, we can't meet people, we don't know people. You hang out with one person once, and you never see them again. And so it's any one number that there is a growing uh, groundswell of singleness in our country. Second observation. Some of the greatest men and women in the Bible and in church history have either been single or got married later in life. Let me see by a raise of hands. How many of you right now would like me to just blow your mind into a trillion particles by reading off to you this list of names from the Bible and church history. Many names that you recognize of men and women who either did not get married, but were used mightily by God, or got married late. How many would you like to see that? All right, we see double hands. All right, you and me, Sheldon, in the back. All right. So let me just go through this. In the Bible, obviously Jesus was single. He was not married, as some ridiculous theories out there say. He was a single man. That's obvious. We know that as the son of God. In the Old Testament, and I'm not going to be able to name all these men. I'm just picking out a few. The prophet Daniel never got married. Prophet Daniel, who was interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and and, uh, who uh, was facing the lions in the den as an old man. This man was not married. Nehemiah, who came to uh, rebuild the, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem, 
and, and uh, along with Ezra, and or actually the walls of Jerusalem, as well as the city with Ezra, was not married. The prophet Jeremiah never got married. In the New Testament, Anna was a woman who was in her mid-80s, and she had a husband for about seven years earlier on. And it says uh, he died, and then she was serving at the temple faithfully for decades upon decades. She's this old woman. Um, on the verge of death, and Jesus is presented after his birth at the temple, and she praises God, this woman who had served so faithfully into later years, and she did it with joy. Never married. Uh, well, she was married, but she was single for a long time. John the Baptist never married. The Apostle Paul. Um, most commentators believe there is a high degree of likelihood at one point he was married. Paul was part of the high-ranking Sanhedrin. Um, ruling class of the Jews, and the, we know that the requirement to be on the Sanhedrin uh, in terms of a, a leadership was to be married. When we meet him, he was not married. We don't know what happened. We uh, have conjecture that his wife died or at some point, or maybe she left him when he decided to become a Christian. We're not really sure how that all worked out, but the Paul that we essentially know was not married, and he died as a single person. When you look throughout church history, you find many Christian luminaries, this great cloud of witnesses of men and women who were theologians, reformers, Puritans, uh, people from the Great Awakening, missionaries, martyrs, who either were not married or got married later. The early church father, Augustine, did not get married. He's one of the greatest theologians in all of Western history. He influenced the reformers. Did not get, he had some concubines, he had a kid at one point, but he never got married. The pre-reformers, some of these men who preceded the great reformers, John Wycliffe, did not get married. It was what, the uh, 1400s or so that he lived, and he, is, uh, he among his other accomplishments, translated the Bible from Latin to English. Did not get married. Jan Hus one of the most well-known pre-reformers in which Martin Luther expressed a debt of gratitude to the example of Jan Hus too. He was a pastor, he was a theologian in what is now like the uh, Czech Republic area of Eastern Europe. And he came against the uh, unbiblical teachings of the Catholic Church. Catholic Church bound him to a stake and burned him. In fact, um, Jan Hus, uh, um, and, he, and he died there, but not married. The reformers, Martin Luther, of course, he was a monk, uh, you know, kind of committed to that, very committed to that. But he did not get married to his wife till he's 42 years old, 42 years old. They had several kids after that. Ulrich Zwingli, the great Swiss reformer, um, of which he split with Martin Luther over the issue of how we're to view the communion table. Remember, Martin Luther said, no, in communion, crisis, uh, he kind of comes through the element. Ulrich Zwingli said, no, when we receive communion, it's a symbolic representation. They split. Ulrich Zwingli, the great Swiss reformer, did not get married till he's 38 years old. The Puritans. William Perkins, who is known as essentially the father of Puritanism, did not get married till he's 37. Richard Baxter, another famous Puritan, 47 until he did not get married. Richard Sibbs, another Puritan who uh, wrote a lot of uh, Puritan literature in terms of, um, of suffering and how to honor God in your suffering, never got married. 
Thomas Goodwin, chaplain of Oliver Cromwell, uh, led the parliament to uh, take control um, and, and was a friend to the Puritans, did not get married till he was 37 years old. Skip forward to the Great Awakening in, in England and the American colonies. And you have John Wesley and Charles Wesley, these brothers, who along with a man named George Whitfield were probably the three biggest names in the Great Awakening with all these tens of thousands of people who came to faith. In fact, it was the uh, Wesleyan revivals and also with Whitfield that a lot of historians believe that happened in England that spared England uh, the equivalent of a French Revolution because all these people were coming to know Christ. Charles Wesley, John Wesley's uh, brother, did not get married until he was 41 years old. John Wesley, which is basically uh, kind of the founder, along with Charles, of the Methodist movement. They had a method for um, discipleship. Did not get married until he was 48 years old. In fact, one commentator I read said that Wesley's wife was, quote, one of the three worst women to ever walk planet Earth. Um, a few more examples. Uh, some women. You have a missionary. And these, these are women of what? Uh, the 20th century. Amy Carmichael. The great missionary to India. 83 years old when she died. Uh, was doing orphanage work for many years in India. Never got married. Gladys Alward. The great missionary to China. Who again did... Uh, missionary worked to orphans and led many children to Christ. 67 years old, never got married. We used to have um, a young woman who came to our church in downtown um, Long Beach that, uh, you know, uh, we were there for about nine years. And uh, this young woman started joining our church. She was part of our church for, I don't know how many, it was your five or six years. And she was single when we met her. She was probably in her 30s. And she went off and, and on a missions trip, a long-term missions trip to Jakarta and Indonesia. And she ministered to uh, the people who lived in the slums. If you've ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, okay, in the beginning scenes where there are dumpsters, that's where she went as a single woman. She served faithfully, uh, ministered to the people when the town burned down, these, these people burned down. Uh, the villages that she was, uh, towns that she was um, ministering to, and she came back. Uh, we still know her. She's serving the Lord faithfully, following him, and still to this day is not married. She's probably in her, I don't know, mid-40s or so. You have all of these people throughout church history who either never, didn't get married, and many others or got married late. I look at that, and I'm amazed, and I'm also encouraged and I'm also convicted. If anyone ever tells you that, uh, you know, if you're single, uh, what can you do for the Lord? Or you, you know, they start implying that to you. You can't be used greatly for it. It's really the married people. It's the married people with kids. Those people are ignorant of the Bible. They're ignorant of church history. They're ignorant of how God has been using mighty men and women in the missions field. And the fact of the matter is, some of the greatest people in the Bible and church history married Late. Next observation. Singles and marrieds who serve the Lord faithfully should be held in high esteem in the church. Singles and marrieds who serve the Lord faithfully should be held in high esteem. But is that the reality? 
Now we can see the latter, that married people in the church who serve the Lord faithfully tend to be held up. I am not convinced here in the West that that is equally the same for singles. And it should be. And I think that the reality is, is that if you want to truly know who the people priority groups in the church are, from infants to seniors, to older married with kids, newly married, singles, and every, every category in between, if you want to know who the true people group priorities are in any church, no matter what the church says on their website, you look at three things. The church budget, where the money goes. Two, where the programs are directed. And number three, where the pastors, which people group do the pastors pay their attention to? Then you'll have your true answer of which people groups, young, seniors, married, are the priority of the church. And too often, if we are honest, the singles are very rarely at the top of that list. And what the Lord wants is that if you're single or you're married and you're serving the Lord faithfully, you should be held in high esteem. And so those are some opening statements. Uh, what I want to do right now is I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to make some comments on a few verses. Um, go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. First Corinthians chapter seven. Let's let's pick this up. Uh, I'm actually going to read verse six here, and Paul is speaking now to the Corinthian church. This is one of the earlier epistles that Paul wrote, um, and the Corinthian church is very much a, 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 a carnal church. It's a church of struggling Christians. This is a church that uh, was largely made up of people from a Gentile or pagan background. I, Lorraine and I have been to Corinth in Greece. It's like a port city. Um, you can see some of the ruins that were left from the time of uh, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. You can see the area, the hill where the temple prostitutes lived. And the people would go up to this, this hill to engage with these prostitutes. It's not far, it's just walking distance from the, uh, the town, the city. And so it was a very pagan place. And you can imagine these sailors coming into town and with all their various uh, worldly ways. And Paul is writing this epistle to them because there are Christians who come from that pagan background. And some of these Christians, they are married to unbelievers. And they're saying, well, now that I'm a Christian, should I remain married to this unbeliever? Some of them are thinking, well, you know, if I'm single, should I just not get married at all? Because, you know, is that, is that a bad thing? Is it bad? Does the Lord want me to be single? Jesus was single. Some of them are thinking, well, if I'm married, should I continue to have physical relations with my spouse? Because is that now seen as a defiling thing and not worshiping God? So there, there's all this confusion at the Corinthian church. And one of the things that Paul addresses, and we'll look at some of these passages in the weeks to come, is he addresses those who are unmarried and those who are singles, whether they're widows, unmarried, uh, virgins, etc. And he says this in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Let me stop there. So what Paul is about to say at this point following verse 6, is he's saying, I don't have a direct command from Jesus from this. Okay, I'm not quoting directly Jesus addressing the issue of singleness. 
but I have a trustworthy saying. And it is because we know that all scripture is inspired, trustworthy, and perfect. And so even though Paul is saying it's not a direct command, the fact that he's saying it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit means that it's coming directly from the Lord. And then he says this in verse 7, I wish that all were as myself am. Let's stop there. This is Paul talking. And he says, all, all, who is the all? All is the Christian believers at Corinth and, and the church. And he's saying, I wish all of you believers were like myself. And what does he mean, like myself? Like myself does not mean, I wish you all suffered the way I did. Beaten, uh, uh, going through shipwrecks, betrayed. He doesn't want them to be like that. He doesn't want them to go through that. He doesn't mean, I want you to be like myself as a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and born of the tribe of Benjamin and having that kind of elite Jewish pedigree. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I wish that um, you were all like myself in terms of being single. Now, he knows that's not realistic. He knows God is giving the command in Genesis 1 to go out into all, to, for the uh, man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. He knows that uh, families are a special part of the kingdom of God. He knows all of that. He's more talking about, I wish in terms of the full un unrestricted devotion to the kingdom of God that you were like me. Again, Paul's writing as a single person. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right, so we're going to make some comments on this. We're going to go back to verse 7 now. He says in verse 7, I wish that you were like myself, like a single person. So the implication being that you can serve the Lord uh, in an unrestricted way. But then he says this, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. That needs some unpacking here. When he says, I wish that, uh, that a person has his own gift, that word gift in verse 7 comes from the Greek word charisma. It's the same Greek word that is used uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and elsewhere that had to do with more like spiritual gifts. Like you become a believer, God gives you the gift of encouragement or the gift of teaching or the gift of administration, gift of mercy service, etc. And you are, God give those to you to move at a supernatural speed with supernatural power to serve the body of Christ. And so that's the same Greek word, but he's not talking about that kind of gift because those are gifts for service. This gift that he's talking about is a station in life. So when he says in verse 7, his own gift or what we call the gift of singleness now, he's talking about you have, some of you have been given one type of gift. He goes on to say one kind or one the other. One type of gift in terms of being married, that's a certain status in life. You're married. And others of you have been given another gift, which is you have a time of singleness. So it's not a spiritual gift per se. It's a gift. The gift of singleness is not a gift that some people have to live like a monk. The gift of singleness is rather a time and a season that you have from God to live without the anxieties or the um, commitments to another spouse or to children. And you can have freedom as a single person to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. That season might be short, 
It might be long, but it's a season. So what does he mean here? What does is, what is gift of singleness mean? Uh, I want you to turn with me to um, Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 11 through 12. Uh, verse, uh, we'll go to verse 10. Uh, the disciples said to him, In such the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone, and Jesus is now talking about people who are single. He's going to talk about three Categories of people who are single. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, that's people who have had um, their, their uh, private areas mutilated. Eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are, secondly, eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So he talks about three categories. He said there are some men who are just born with a, a, a physical deformity. And because of that, there was no desire to get married. That's the first category. The second category, there are other people who were maybe slaves of the Roman Empire uh, or in the past history of God's people were slaves in Babylon or Assyria or something. And when you were a slave, you were uh, oftentimes castrated. And some that was made by other men. But he says, also, thirdly, there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, some people might have voluntarily done something surgically to themselves, but that also could have meant people who have decided to devote themselves fully to the kingdom of God. And notice, he, does, he doesn't say these people are better than the others. What he says is, if you're able to receive it, then receive it. He's simply making a statement of fact. There are some people who devote themselves fully to the work of God, and it's essentially a choice. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. So the gift of singleness is a time period. It's a season to serve the Lord. Maybe it's short. Maybe it's long. If you are single, then you are going through a time, a season, where you have the gift of singleness. When I was single, I didn't get married to my 30s. And, but I, I had determined that when I was going to be single, forever short or long that lasted, my time of singleness was going to be focused. It was going to be a time that was sustained, it, uh, sustained in terms of my focus on the Lord. It was, I found that to be a fulfilling time in my life, a rewarding time in my life. And the reason why is because I realized in my mind, I didn't know if I was going to get married. I'm thankful I got married to Larry and I have three beautiful kids. But if you'd asked me in my um, early 20s, are you going to get married? I was like, yeah, I hope so. But even if I don't, that's okay. Because I had already made the commitment in my 20s to say, I'm going to just serve the Lord wholeheartedly. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, okay. Is it going to be easy? No. But I have found the one and true love of my life, which is not my wife. It's God. And, um, and any true Christian would say that same. And so in my 20s, um, I went through these stages, just to give an example. And I'm not saying this because you have to copy exactly what I did. I'm not saying this because I'm so much better than you. What I'm saying is like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. 
I'm going to give you some examples of how I used my time of singleness, what it looked like to redeem the time so that I would not look back. And if I'm still single at 40, 50, 60, I did not want to look back at that point in my life on the previous 30, 40, 50 years and say, I I wasted my time. I wasted my life. That at least I could say I redeemed the time for the Lord. And so when I was in my 20s, I graduated college and then I went into a master's program in business administration. I was going to school full time. And then I was working 25 hours a week at Nordstrom. And then on Friday nights, I would serve every Friday night at my church. I would serve every Sunday morning at my church. And I did that for two years. And after that, I went off to seminary. And I, uh, for about three years, I went to school full time. And I worked two days a week on top of that. And then every Friday, I served at my church. And every Sunday, I went to two church services. The same church services. Uh, church services. And, um, and then after that, I worked full time. I led two small groups every week. I was living in East LA in Montebello. And I would drive uh, once a week to Santa Monica to lead a small group. A weekday small group. And then I would drive from Montebello to uh, Playa del Rey to lead another small group, an outreach small group, you know, every week. And then I was also at the same time going to three services every Sunday. And these were not three different services at three different churches. I was going to the same church that had three different services. I was saying I was going to one service in the morning that was just kind of to worship the Lord. And at the second service, I would serve at that service. And then they had an evening service in downtown Los Angeles. I would go drive out to downtown Los Angeles, show up early, uh, set up all the chairs for hundreds of people, go listen to the service. And after the service, while people were socializing, me and my team would break down all the chairs and everything to put that back into the basement of the place that we're uh, meeting at. And I did that for years. And I say that because this was my time and season of singleness. And I said, I'm going to fully devote myself full speed ahead to the work of the Lord and to be in community with God's people. And I think it was through that experience that the Lord sustained me. And he said, you know what? The work of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the community with God's people is what is going to sustain you. And you will never, Chris, you will never regret that. What is the gift of singleness? The gift of singleness in your season of singleness does not mean that you never struggle with any kind of physical temptation. Like it doesn't even enter your mind. You're completely bulletproof and immune. And so there are these superhero people that they never experience that. That that doesn't exist in human beings. Okay. What the gift of singleness is, is that you may struggle at times with that, but you're not giving into it on a regular basis. It's not dominating your life. Um, if you are single here today, you have to look at the opposite, which is not just how can I fully give myself to the Lord and his people, but you have to look at the opposite side of the equation, the opposite side of the coin. And that is, what would my life look like if I use this season of singleness? 
and I did not redeem the time. And the reality is that this season of singleness has become what I see as a curse. Enormous pressure is put upon you as a single person, both from outside and inside the church, to what? For your life to look a certain way. You know, for you to have a certain companion, you to have certain kids, etc. And even in the church, that can happen. And so what would it look like if you are in a season of singleness and you are not redeeming the time? Number one, um, I've talked to many singles over two and a half decades of ministry. Where in their singleness, they're coming to church, but they're involved in sexual immorality. Either in terms of what they're doing in the real world, in the real physical world, or what they're allowing constantly through their eyes, through their screen. If you're in a season of singleness, you're not redeeming the time if you're in a place of Christian grumbling. Um, This is one of the areas that we don't talk about enough in church is the sin of grumbling. Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 2 quite clearly, he says, if you're children of the light who shine like stars in the universe, you should hold up fast to the word of life without grumbling. We all know the problem that Israel ran into when they grumbled in the wilderness. And among other reasons, God said, I'm tired of your grumbling. I'm tired of your complaining. You'll stay here for 40 years and your kids will go into the promised land. It is entirely, completely consistent with the character of God to look at our lives and he can come to a point where he can say, I I don't want to hear your grumbling anymore. Okay, I understand, you know, the struggle and and the temptation. I sent my son here. He he can relate, even though he didn't fall into sin. Uh, But I don't want to hear the grumbling. And it's entirely consistent with God where you say, you know what? I'm just going to make you wait if you're grumbling. We don't want to be in that place. Um, One of the worst scenarios you can find yourself in, in a season of singleness, is... I said before, you can live if you end up, like, if you can live if you are single at 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, but you can look back on your life and say, I redeemed the time in that prolonged season of singleness. You can live with yourself. You can be at peace with the Lord and with your life. You may not have a different plan for it, but you can be at peace. However, on the other hand, if you are looking back on your life and you say, you know what? Yeah, but um, there's honestly a lot of what I did that gave the Lord too much reason for him not to entrust the right person into my life. I prayed for it. I wanted it. I had a plan for my life. But the reality was, and your conscience will convict, is to say I had unrepentant sin for entire seasons that were entrenched into my life. That gave the Lord too many reasons to withhold that blessing from me. You have to be ruthless if you're a single person with that stuff. And I'm not saying, and no one's expecting, not even God, to say, well, you got to eliminate all sin from your life and, you know, until everything, and then God will. That's not the point. Christ covers all of that in forgiveness and cleansing His grace. The point being what? 
in your own conscience, you have to do the best you can to eliminate what you know are areas that would make you an untrustworthy person if God was to actually provide for you the right person. And you got to be ruthless about that stuff to address it. Um, Number four, uh, in the gift of singleness, in terms of it being a curse, not a blessing to serve the Lord in an undivided way. Uh, In Proverbs chapter 18, verses 1, I think this is an extraordinarily important verse for um, the issue of singleness. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The proverb says this, if you are in a place where you're isolating yourself, it's not because you're an introvert. It's not because of your personality test. The reason why you're isolating yourself is not just because you need just constant alone time and you're just broken away from the church. It's just, you know, what the proverb is saying is people who consistently isolate themselves from the exposure to God's people and the exposure to God's word What's really happening in their heart, it's not their personality makeup. What it is, is they're breaking out, verse 1, against all sound judgment, judgment of the Lord. They're saying, I don't want to be subject to um, the truth that's found in the church. I don't want to be subject to the word. I don't, want, I don't want that accountability. I'll just do it on my own. And that's when your season of singleness becomes a curse. And you have to avoid those scenarios, you guys. All right, so the gift of singleness. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 8. Again, Paul saying, this is not a command, but it's, it's a concession. Okay, um, I'm sorry. He says, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am as well, as I am. Reiterating essentially what he said in part of verse 7. Now he says this in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows. Widows, we know, are women who lost their husband or husbands left them for some reason or another. The unmarried here um, probably refers more to people who used to be married um, but are not married as well, maybe men. But I think the general principle is for those who are not married in general, maybe still single, maybe still virgin, Paul saying again, I wish that you were single as I am, with the assumption being so that you can serve the Lord faithfully. And we know that because if you skip down now, stay on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's go to verse, skip down to verse 32 to 35. In verse 32 through 35, Paul says a little bit later on this, I want you to be free from anxieties. And this is why he wants them, the, uh, the unmarried to be like him. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. So you, if, you can make sense, right? If you're a single person, you can be focused solely on the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. Verse 33. But the married man is anxious about what? Worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. So if I'm a husband, if I'm a single man, I can... Use my time to redeem itself, to redeem the time, to serve the Lord and his people in an unrestricted way. I kind of am the master of my own schedule. 
When I get married, for all the blessings that marriage is and the wonderful things, marriage is a good thing. Having children is a good thing. However, Paul also says that also brings anxieties with you. If you're married, you understand marriage, parenting brings anxieties because you're not just thinking about yourself. You're thinking about someone else's schedule. You're thinking about someone else's needs, someone else's hurts. I think Paul would have had a lot more anxiety in his life when he ministered as an apostle if he was actually married during that time. But he understood that. And then he says this in verse 34. And, he, uh, and the unmarried and the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How? How to be what? Holy in body and spirit. This is the preoccupation of the godly woman who's single. I'm devoted to being holy and pure and righteous in both my body. I'm saving it for the time I get married as well as my spirit. I'm growing in spiritual maturity. These are the two areas I'm devoting myself to as a single woman. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now, Paul's not saying it's bad for a woman to please her husband in marriage. Obviously, that's very good. We see that elsewhere in the New Testament. But he's just stating the reality is that a woman cannot solely focus on her own spirituality. She has to take care of the kids. She has to take care of her husband and please her husband in different ways as well, just as a husband should for the wife. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure the what? Undivided attention to the Lord. So the summary of all of this is what? You can have undivided attention as a single. This is the great opportunity that you have in the gift of the season of singleness. And so let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul saying, if you cannot exercise self-control, primarily over your sexual desires, then it's better for you to marry than to burn with passion. <coughs> now, um, I'm going to give several exhortations related to burning with passion. I'm going to give about four exhortations, and I'm going to give three exhortations related to marrying in verse 9. It's all related to verse 9. Burning with passion. What does that mean? Burning with passion does not mean that you have experienced temptation. You could just walk down the street, minding your own business, and someone walks by, and you have this momentary moment of temptation or you see an ad on a you know on a television or something like that or on your screen you weren't even looking for this but you experience that moment of temptation is that burning with passion no we are tempted all of the time every one of us from the most holy to the most unrighteous what burning with passion means is that you can look at your life and you see a pattern of a lack of self-control over not one time, but a pattern over a series where it really has a stronghold over your life. It's not a one-time slip up every now and then. 
has to do with your life marking a lack of self-control. And there's a difference between what is an occasional temptation versus a constant sense of temptation, a constant sense of lack of self-control, a constant sense of defeat where there is uh, very little, if any, victory in this area of your life. And so secondly, how do you deal with this? You know, there's all these commands, right? Flee the youthful lusts that you had, Timothy, for Timothy 6. Right? Don't live as the Gentiles live, as Paul writes elsewhere, um, in, in their sexual immorality, right? Uh, like First Thessalonians, etc. That the Lord wants your, your sexual sanctification. So how do, how do you address that? Well, I think when we, go, uh, when we look at the passage that we just looked at, verse 32 and 34, he says, you know, um, the unmarried man, verse 32, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Verse 34, um, the woman who is unmarried or not committed to being married, verse 34, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. What you have to do as a Christian is the best way to get rid of an old unhealthy passion in the world is not simply to say, I will stop it. I will put blockers on my phone. I will, you know, um, keep confessing this thing to the Lord. I mean, that, that counts. Those things are wise and necessary. But that's not enough. See, what you have to do is verse 32 and verse 34. How to what? Please the Lord as a man. Verse 34, how to be anxious about the things of the Lord, holy in body and spirit. You have to now adopt and direct yourself and throw yourself into the things of the Lord. Because when you do that, you find, wait, I don't have time for sin. I just don't have time because I'm too busy with things of the Lord. I'm with God's people. And the Lord starts to sanctify you through that process. When you're in community with God's people, you start to draw strength. Because why? Hebrews chapter 10 says you are spurred on towards love and good deeds. See, when you isolate yourself, in front of your computer all day, in front of, you know, games, and, and just like forget God's people, I'll just sit, sit in the church service and listen and just be, leave after that. You're isolating yourself and you're cutting yourself off from one of the most important ways that the Lord wants to strengthen you. So that is why I gave you all those examples from when I was in my 20s before I was married. I was saying, you know what? I'm just going to busy my, yeah, I got to work. I got to go to school. That's fine. But in my off time, I said, I'm just going to fully devote myself to the things of the Lord. When I was in my 20s, I would stay home on a Friday night, Saturday night, um, just read theology books because I was just so hungry to learn about God's truth. If someone, if I talked to someone on the phone, they asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, which was a lot of times. Um, I would say, I will make it my mission in life to get the answer and I will not go out until I get this answer. I had, I had just threw myself completely into it. And I think that was one of the reasons why I was able to keep out of trouble. Because I was devoting myself to the things of the Lord. And I just pass it on to you, not as a way of patting myself on the back, but to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Because that is how I've seen the Lord sustain. So, burning with passion. Um, if you're burning with, with physical passion and he says in verse 9, uh, then get married. You should not just try and marry the, same per- the first person you meet. Um, the criteria on who to marry is not 
simply, do they go to church? Or do they say they're a Christian? Now, that's a good sign. If you're a single person and you meet someone and you say, oh, they, they go to church. And then you see them go to church and they say they're a Christian. That is an excellent starting place. But that's actually not the best question to ask. And I'll tell you why. There's a lot of people in every church in America who go to church, maybe for years, and they're not even saved. They don't even know Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who say that they're actually Christian. And anyone who's been on these Christian dating sites will attest to that. that when they put in the profile, I'm a Christian, you find out, oh, maybe you're really not. And so, uh, so the fact that someone says they're, I go to church or a Christian is a good starting place, but it isn't the best criteria. What you should look for is these two questions. More important. When I'm with this person, one, do I become more like Jesus? When I'm in a relationship with this person, a friendship, dating, or whatever it might be, engagement, do I find my character conforming to Christ when I'm in the presence of this person? Do I find the fruit of the Spirit coming out of my life when I'm with this person? Do I find myself maturing in Jesus Christ when I'm with this person? Far better determinant. You can use the Bible to see that criteria. Second question, when that person is with me, are they becoming more like Jesus? Because you can, they can actually have a good influence in you, but you're kind of influencing them in a bad way. You might not be the right person for them. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Or are they becoming more like Jesus? If you are burning with passion, and you're hearing this, want to get married. And you are here and you have same-sex attraction. And you are in this place where I'm attracted to this same uh, gender, same sex. Maybe I don't want to let people know it is the reality. Uh, and I'm a single person. What the Lord's command to you is to remain celibate. To remain celibate, to pray for the Lord's healing, to pray for the Lord's forgiveness, to pray for the Lord's sanctification, his strength, his truth in your life. I know people who, um, I was at a Christian camp a year and a half ago. And this one older gentleman that I kind of have seen around over the decades um, just gave me a note. And it was like, a whole testimony, like nine pages of a testimony. And he's talking about kind of his struggles in this area. But uh, at the same time, he's going to church right now. And he's going on mission trips and stuff. And I, as far as I can see, he's living a celibate life. And he's an older gentleman, a senior citizen. And if you're in a same-sex attraction situation, the Lord wants you to be celibate. He does not bless people who burn with passion and then choose to release that passion in a same-sex marriage. It's ungodly. It's against God's design for marriage in Genesis 1 and Ephesians chapter 5. And so burning with passion to get married does not apply just to whoever you want to get married to, period. I, I counsel single people that when it comes to the issue of marriage, uh, a person's Christian character is not enough for you to want to get married to them. You have to actually be physically attracted. 
And I think that's true. In verse 9, he says, if you're burning with physical passion, then get married. Well, the assumption is what? That if you get married, you're going to be attracted to the person and it will help address the issue that you're burning with passion. You know, my mom told me one time that when uh, she was growing up, there was this one man, really good looking man, and, you know, all these girls wanted to marry him. And he chose to marry a woman who is probably the most physically unattractive woman there. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't, you know, that that can't work. And I know beauty is not about, you know, what's on the outside. It's also when it's inside. I'm not saying that. But this is what my mom said. She says that happened because, in her words, he wanted to show everyone that, um, that love was not about physical attraction. Okay? So they got married. They got divorced soon thereafter. I think God has designed marriage. When you look in the book of, so- uh, book of Song of Solomon's, Solomon, it talks about the importance of physical attraction in a marriage. And so I counsel singles, um, Christian character at the core, right? Devotion to the Lord at the core. Being part of a godly church at the core. But you've got to be physically attracted. doesn't mean... Um, Fulfill every category, but that's got to be there. Uh, some exhortations, on, some more exhortations on marriage. I believe that one of the best ways to position your life for God to then work to align you with the right person. I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do and sovereignly, we understand that. But it's to serve. It's to start serving in your church. To start, for some missionaries, they go, I know many, many people who went onto the missions field and they actually found their spouse within the first year, someone else who came from another part of the country to serve on the missions field. They found each other and they got married. Some of them have kids now. I know these people. I know other people who just chose to serve. Um, Lorraine and I met when we were serving. We didn't even know each other. We chose to serve on prayer ministry in this one Christian ministry. And that's how we met when our commitment was first to the Lord and serving. If you are looking to get married and you're burning with passion, do not compromise if you are a believer and marry an unbeliever. I've seen it happen. You see warnings in scripture throughout. In the book of Deuteronomy, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is giving God's people some commands before they go into the promised land. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, When the Lord God brings you, this is Moses speaking to God's people, into the land that you are entering to take possession of. This is the land with all the pagan people in the promised land. And clears away many of the nations before you, the Hittites, Girishites, Amor- uh, Amorites, and the Canaanites, the per- uh, Perizzites, Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. Verse 2, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. 
God was saying through Moses, look, when you're believing sons and daughter, sons or daughters, marry the unbelieving sons or daughters of the pagan people, what's going to happen is that the pagan children will not come to worship the one and true and living God. Your children will start to worship the pagan gods. And when you look in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll summarize it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's very clear to the Corinthian church. He says, do not be yoked together, one believer with an unbeliever. Because when you do, and two people come together, and marriage is the ultimate of yoking together. It's like combining Christ and Satan, light and darkness. It's a very serious thing. I have had many friends over the years, lifelong friends, come to me and say, I'm a professing follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to get married to this unbeliever. Will you do our wedding? And um, my first reaction for about five seconds is usually, oh, I would love to do this because you're my lifelong friend. And what an honor. Thank you for thinking about me. I think that for like five seconds. And then on the sixth second, I say no. And I say, you know what? Um, I would love to be there for you. What an honor. Thank you. But there's no way I can do your wedding. Um, And I've said that to many people. Because what I see the Bible teaching is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when a professing believer marries an unbeliever, you're joining Christ with Satan. A wedding ceremony is a worship service. There's singing. There's reading of scripture. There's praying. There's vows before the Lord. When it's, when it's officiated by a Christian pastor, that is a worship service. And a joining together of one Christian with an unbeliever is a yoking together with light and darkness. My mother was a professing believer. She married my dad, who is an unbeliever. I'm here as a pastor. I think that is totally the grace of God. Was it the right biblical decision for my mother to marry my father? As much as she loved him, as great as they were for the uh, 50 plus years of marriage, the answer is no, biblically. Um, I have had relatives who have been professing followers of Jesus Christ, who have been baptized professing followers of Jesus Christ, come to me and either said, you know, you know, either can you do the wedding or can you attend the wedding? And there's times when I've had to say, no, I cannot. And I took a lot of flack for that from pastors, friends, relatives saying, what are you doing? This is terrible. You're being unloving. How can you not at least go to this wedding of a professing believer with an unbeliever being joined together? And this is a ceremony. It's not even being conducted by a Christian pastor. And I said, uh, no, I cannot. You know, if it's if two unbelievers getting married, that might be different. But that to me is um, a violation of 2 Corinthians 6. I cannot participate in that in good conscience. So where does this all leave us today? Number one, as the church, what God wants for City Bible Church, what God wants for his church, if you are married, God wants you to make a commitment, not just to your marriage, not just to your children, but to those who are single as well in the church. A healthy church is one where marrieds and singles are in community together. When Lorraine and I got married, we made the commitment where we said, When we get married, we are not going to be a Christian couple who only have Christian family friends who are married or married with kids. We said we're going to have those friends, but also those 
who are Christian singles as well. And I think we have. And if you're married, our take, one of our takeaways is that the Lord wants you to make a priority to pray for, to include, to serve, to help, to love those who are single in the church. If you are single, the takeaway is to devote your time during the season of singleness to fully serve the Lord, to fully be devoted to the work of the Lord, to be in community with God's people, to use your disposable time and say, maybe I need to spend a little bit less time on social media or playing video games or whatever. And, and, and just say, I need to devote, what would it look like to give yourself in an unrestricted way to the Lord, either as a woman or a man? If you're older here as a single person, and maybe you're a widow, or maybe you're older and you're single for another reason, maybe you're older and you never got married. And I think what the Lord wants you to take away is like Anna, who was married for seven years and then lived the majority of her adult life in singleness as a godly woman serving at the temple into her mid-80s. The Lord wants you to have the joy of the Lord in your life. He wants you to know you have gone through a far distance, a marathon as a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a boxer. You have run this race and you are deserving of the joy of the Lord, that the Lord will sustain you through this difficulty that you may face, that you have some of the greatest contributions that you can give to God's people and to God in your life right now, that you have a great cloud of witnesses who have come before you, who are older than you, who got married later than you, who served the Lord faithfully and were used greatly by God and were highly esteemed by God and the church, who give you testimony and say, um, we have walked this path, we have walked it faithfully, and so will you, so can you. And you should walk away greatly encouraged by that. And the church should honor those who are single who serve faithfully. So that is our word from the Lord today. For those of us who are single, we want to honor that. And we want to be a God-oriented church with that. Let's pray together. Father, as we close in worship, um, in a sense, we are primarily married to you. Whether we're married here on earth or not, uh, we are to live with a sense of urgency in the current times of distress and to devote ourselves completely to you and to the body of Christ. We know, Lord, that the world is it's a dark place. It's an isolating place. And yet you have, through your grace, provided the community of God's people to spur us on towards love and good deeds. May we not be counted among the grumbling masses, Lord, who fritter away the time. May we redeem the time and get about the work of the Lord and the people of the Lord. And I know you will bless those who do, and the church will hold up to high esteem those who do, Lord. We pray City Bible Church would be that type of church and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's stand together and close in worship.